Good morning. It's good to see everyone this morning. All right. I think the microphone is working. Good. All right. Well, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Rand Hobegger. I am not one of the pastors here. Um, I lead and teach in our kids and youth ministries, and I love being able to serve the body of Christ here at Redemption in any way that I can, including preaching occasionally, which gives our pastors a break. Uh, this morning, our lead pastor, Anthony, is down at our sister church in Alhambra, and he's preaching down there. And so in just a moment, I'm actually going to lead us in prayer. We typically pray for another ministry here locally. Um, today, since Anthony is down at Alhambra, one of our sister churches, we're going to pray for him and for that church this morning, and then also pray for ourselves that God would teach us as we open his word. So let's pray together. Gracious Father, we come to you this morning in the name and through the merits of our great high priest, Jesus Christ, who gives us great confidence to approach you with boldness, with all of our requests and all of our needs. This morning, we lift up our church, our sister church in Alhambra, and our pastor Anthony as he teaches there, and we ask that you would fill him with your spirit, help him to speak your words faithfully, and may your words pierce the hearts of those there, encouraging them, convicting them, and changing them to be more like Jesus. And then, God, we ask the exact same thing here. As I open the word this morning, would you speak through me? Would you fill me with your spirit? Would you send your spirit to speak to every heart represented here to change each of us to be more like our great high priest and to have greater and greater confidence in the one whom we celebrate this Advent season? We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I am very grateful for the opportunity to preach during this Advent season, especially because of the unique focus that we're taking over these several weeks. We're looking at this topic, longing for our prophet, priest, and king. Last week, Kyle preached a wonderful message. If you, haven't, if you weren't here and you haven't listened to it, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that because it really ties in with what we're going to be looking at this week. But last week, Kyle taught on how we long for a better prophet than those we read about in the Old Testament, than those that we see within our modern culture, and how Jesus fulfills that longing for one who brings us God's truth. So continuing in that theme of longing for our prophet, priest, and king, this morning, we're hitting the second one of those. We are looking this morning at longing for our priest, which was the subject of the passage from Hebrews chapter 2 that Jacqueline read for us. But before we do that, before we get into the word, before we look at a number of things about Jesus as our priest, we're going to go back in time. And I'd like you to just use your imagination. Maybe this is easier or harder for some of you. But I'd like you to use your imagination to go back in time with me about 3,000 years and put yourself in this scene. Imagine that you are a young child living right around 1,000 BC. You're a Jewish child in a Jewish family living just outside of Jerusalem in Israel just over 3,000 years ago. Your father is a shepherd, just like his father and his grandfather before him. And since early spring, you've started helping your family with sheep herding duties. And the first thing that you get to do as you learn to be a shepherd in your family is you have been given specific care 
of one little lamb who was just born in the spring. It's now summertime, it's hot, it's humid, and you're taking care of this little lamb every day. And your father gave you the best of the lambs. Unlike many of the other lambs who were born in the spring, this one is perfect. She's beautiful. She is spotless white. And even though your parents have told you that your flock is your family's business and that sheep get slaughtered and sold and that you really shouldn't get too attached to your sheep, of course you're attached. This is your favorite little lamb. She's wonderful. She's practically a pet to you, even though you know she's not supposed to be. And so you're taking care of your little lamb, and one day after coming in from the fields, your family has dinner, and right near the end of dinner, your father does something unusual. He stands up from your table, and he says that he has a confession to make. He's already told your mother, and he's talked to the rabbi, and he's apparently not going to share all the details with you all, but he says that he has sinned against God, and he and your mother believe that this is serious enough that you're not going to wait another nine months until the Day of Atonement. You're going to go as a family to Jerusalem tomorrow and make a sacrifice for your father's sin. And you've never seen your father this upset, this broken about anything, but the weight of what's actually happening doesn't hit you until he explains exactly what God requires for this sacrifice. He says that for sin, God requires a blood sacrifice of a female goat or a female lamb without spot and without blemish. And then it hits you. Your family doesn't have any goats. But you do have one spotless white lamb. The next morning, as you join your family in piling into the cart to leave for the city, just as you feared, your father rounds the corner around your house, and he's carrying your little lamb. And before you can protest, he comes up to you and he whispers to you as he hands you the lamb, and he says in a raspy voice, my child, this is the best one we have. And so he lets you hold her all the way to Jerusalem. You cling to your lamb all the way up the winding, rutted, bumpy road, up to the tabernacle that King David has built in Jerusalem, and you all unload when you get there. You unload outside the tall fabric walls of the tabernacle. And your father takes your lamb from you. And he carries her and he leads your family through the courtyard of the place of worship that you've only visited a few times before that you can remember. The air is thick. It's thick with the odors of crowds and animals on this hot day. But there are other smells that grab your attention. There's this thick, smoky smell of incense, maybe frankincense. And then there's another smell. It's coming from the great golden altar that you can see as the crowd parts occasionally, and it's the smell of overcooked or burnt meat. And your father, carrying your lamb, resolutely shoulders your family through the press of the milling crowds. And he finally stops close to the altar in front of a white-bearded priest. Your lamb looks tiny in your father's big arms. And your lamb clearly is confused and scared and begins to bleat. And you hear your lamb, but you also hear your father say a few almost inaudible words to the priest. And the priest looks compassionately at him, puts his hand on your father's shoulder, and replies with something you've heard before from the Torah about sin and a sacrifice 
and forgiveness. And then it's like things go into slow motion. Your father turns his back to you. He's holding the lamb, but then he's lifting her up and he's tying your lamb to the horns of the altar. And the priest has his hands raised to heaven and is now speaking words of scripture, but those words aren't nearly drowning out the terrified bleats of your little lamb now tied to the altar. And directed by the priest, your father lays his left hand deliberately onto the head of the lamb. His back is shielding you from what you know is happening, but you see your father's right arm raise up with the long knife that he carries. And then there's a pause. And then his hand falls, and your lamb is silent. The next minutes are a tear-stained blur for you. The priest speaking words of forgiveness over your father. Your father cutting up a blood-soaked little body and handing pieces to the priest. The priest's wet hands smearing crimson stains on the golden horns of the altar while still speaking scriptures and adding the fat of the lamb to the fire. The smoke, the blood, the smell. Late that night, back at home in your bed, you can't help but remember something that the priest spoke over your father. One phrase sticks with you. It is the blood that makes atonement. That rings over and over again in your mind. Because thinking about your lifeless lamb lying in her own blood there in front of the priest, you do have gratitude for your father's sin being forgiven, but it's mixed with a guilty hatred at that priest and a longing for there to be some, way other to, some other way to forgive sin than priests presiding over the slaughter of innocent lambs. All right. Come back with me to 2023 in Flagstaff. What does this story of a Jewish family and a sacrifice for sin have to do with Advent? Advent means arrival. It means coming. And during this season, we celebrate the arrival of God's chosen one. And God's chosen one, Jesus Christ, fulfills all of his people's longing for a better priest and a better sacrifice for their sins. I don't think we can truly understand or appreciate, however, how Jesus fulfills this office of priest that we're going to talk about today until we understand what priesthood was in the Old Testament and how what the priests provided then is actually exactly what we still long for today in 2023. So we're going to start by looking at who the priests were in the Bible. The most de basic definition of a priest, even outside of biblical terms, a priest is just a person who mediates. It's a mediator, one who stands between a deity and that deity's worshipers. The priest is the one who stands between making those worshipers acceptable or forgiven by a god. And in the scriptures, the Jewish priesthood actually began with Moses' brother Aaron, whom God appointed to the office of high priest to represent the Hebrew people who had come out of Egypt, to represent them and to mediate between God and his sinful people. All you have to do is go back and read in the book of Exodus 
and you read how God's people failed over and over and over again. And God gives them a law, and that law prescribes that there should be someone who offers sacrifices for the sins of his people. The first of those was Aaron. And then in Exodus chapter 40, we're not going to take time to read it, but you can go back and look at this passage. In Exodus 40, God commanded that priests should be chosen and anointed from one particular Jewish family, the tribe of Levi. That's where we get the term Levites. It's even where we get the name of one of the early books of our Bible, Leviticus, that gives all of the rules for the priesthood and for Jewish worship. From this tribe of Levi, priests were selected and they were given the job for life to serve God in the tabernacle and then later in the temple performing priestly duties. What were those priestly duties? They were all of the rituals of the Jewish faith, which are outlined in the books of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. These duties included giving priestly blessings, purification and cleansing rituals, numerous different sacrifices, including blood sacrifices for removing the guilt of sin called a sacrifice of atonement, which I just described a few minutes ago. They had other responsibilities as well. But their primary purpose was to be mediators between God and his people and to be mediators in at least three ways. The first way that priests provided mediation is they provided access to God. Priests provided access. You see, God's presence dwelled in a place called the Holy of Holies. It was an inside tent inside a bigger tent inside the bigger tent of the tabernacle. And in the Holy of Holies, God's presence dwelt among his people on the Ark of the Covenant. A box, a ceremonial box that God had commanded to be built that carried certain special things from the Jewish faith. And God's presence dwelt there. And nobody could approach God's presence. If anybody would have sneaked into that tent, they would have been killed instantly by the holy presence of God. There was only one man in all of Israel who could ever approach the presence of God, and that was one time per year, when the high priest in Israel, the priest who was in charge of all the other priests, he would put on simple white linen garments with bells on them so the people could hear whether he actually made it in or not because they couldn't go in with him. And he would go on and take blood and put it on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant and he would experience the presence of God. And he would mediate between God's people and a holy God and be able to experience God's presence. The priests were those who mediated access into the presence of God. Access wasn't available to everybody to come into the presence of God. Only the priests could do that. But priests not only provided access to God, they provided acceptance by God. If you read through the Old Testament, especially the book of Leviticus, you'll find that God established all kinds of laws, some of them really obscure, some of them really strange and confusing, but he established all kinds of laws which were intended to keep his people pure and holy and separate from all of the pagan nations around them. And the priests had a job because in order to be accepted by a holy God, and to be allowed to be in community with the people of God, there were all kinds of things that could make you impure and unacceptable to either God's people or to God himself. 
And so the priests were those who would provide purification rituals that would allow someone to be accepted back into the fellowship of God and his people. There were all kinds of things. It could be that a new baby was born. That new baby and his mother were unclean. They had to go through a purification ritual. A farmer had touched a dead animal on his field and had to clean that up, had to bury it, had to have a purification ritual. A person was recovering from an infectious disease. There was a purification ritual for that too. There were all these things that could make you unclean and the priests performed rituals that allowed a person to be accepted back into fellowship with the rest of the people of God and with God himself. And then perhaps most importantly, priests provided not only access to God and acceptance by God, they provided absolution. Now, fancy word alert, I chose the word absolution for two reasons. One is that it's the actual word that has historically been used by the largest church on earth, the Catholic Church, to describe the removal of guilt from sin specifically by a priest. So it's a well-known word in some religious circles. There's a second reason that I chose it, much less important, but that is that it starts with the letter A, and I am a sucker for a good alliterated list. So access, acceptance, absolution. There's a really good chance that if I had used access, acceptance, and removal of judicial guilt of sin, that you might not have remembered that list. But you might remember access, acceptance, and absolution, especially now that I have so awkwardly emphasized it. You're welcome. When God's people broke God's law in any way, the only way for their guilt to be removed and their relationship restored to God was for an animal to die in their place. Priests performed this mediation. And as with the father in the story that I just told, if you violated one of God's commandments, the Levitical law described exactly what kind of sacrifice had to be offered for your sin. And you had to believe that God would forgive your sin because of the blood shed by the animal who symbolically was being punished in your place. It was your death or the animals that God required. And so an animal was sacrificed for sin. Once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the priests sacrificed animals on behalf of the entire nation to atone for any and all sins that God's people had committed that had broken the relationship with God. And all of these rituals, all of these sacrifices were intended to create a longing, a longing among God's people for a day when the Messiah would come and fulfill and complete all of these symbols. Once and for all, providing eternal mediation between God and his sinful people. The priesthood and the sacrificial system lasted for a long time. They lasted all the way from the time of Moses, through the time of Christ in the first century, all the way up until Rome destroyed the Jerusalem temple in AD 70. And the Jews were scattered across the empire and their centralized worship at the temple was ended. But even though Jewish priests have not performed a temple sacrifice in just about 2,000 years, I would argue that the longing for what the priests provided, not just by the Jewish people, but by all people, a longing for exactly what the priests provided is just as strong today. And even though I'm guessing that none of you have really had any 
curiosity or desire to perform an animal sacrifice recently, at least I really hope not, I do believe that we long for the exact same things that the ancient Israelites needed from the priests. The difference is we long for someone and something better and we actually know what and who that is. But before we get into that, I'd like to just examine this claim that we actually long for the same things. Do we really long for what the priests provided in the Old Testament? I think we do. And I'm going to use that same alliterated list. You're going to get real sick of these three words. We long for access. We really do. Humanity is both determined and highly creative in seeking access to a higher power. Romans chapter 1 tells us that we have the knowledge of God's existence literally written on our hearts. And humanity has always, all the way back to the Garden of Eden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, humanity has tried to gain access to thinking and being like God. Humanity has wanted access to the realm of the spiritual. Throughout history, all kinds of world religions and philosophies have looked to the stars, to signs, to meditation, to the physical arts, all kinds of different things to unlock the door to the presence of the divine. In ancient Israel, as I just mentioned, only a very select few, the high priests, had direct access to the presence of God. And the very system of God's true religion inherently created scarcity. It created a longing for true and full access to God. And we still long for this access into God's presence today. Eastern religions tell us that meditation and self-discipline can open our eyes to a divine plane. The largest Christian religion that I mentioned a moment ago, the Roman Catholic Church, offers a system of priests and revered saints to give normal folks like you and me access to God indirectly through them. Even the non-religious seek access. They seek elevated experiences through drugs, through sex, through many other things, to gain access to a level of ecstasy that normal everyday life cannot offer. Oh, and don't get me started on politics. So much of the rabid loyalty that we see to politicians in our culture is all about a Machiavellian quest in which the ends justify the means to gain access. Maybe it's not access to God himself, but it's access to godlike power over culture and influence that's promised by whatever chosen leader we follow. Because we long for access still today. We long not only for access, we long for acceptance. Acceptance by those with power especially has always been just as important as mere access to humanity. And if history teaches us nothing else, it is that acceptance is not something to be taken for granted. Caste systems, social inequities, racial divides and conflicts, extreme nationalism, all of these societal evils which rage on today have at their heart a failure to accept someone who is other. Maybe that other is just someone who's different, someone who's foreign, someone who's lesser, the one who is poorer, the one who is darker, the one who is weaker. When we ourselves experience that lack of acceptance, it infuriates us. It makes us feel inadequate. We desperately seek acceptance when we feel that we don't have it. And so we very legitimately protest 
and fight to be accepted by systems and organizations and governments who deny us the acceptance that we desire. For so many kids growing up in this country, their whole childhood is crafted by their parents to ensure acceptance. Acceptance by their peers, acceptance in an elite sports team, acceptance at the college of choice. Acceptance is important to us. And then, on a much smaller, more trivial scale, I would say that our longing for acceptance, especially in our Western culture, is exposed by our social media activity. It is all about acceptance. I mean, think about it. The TikTok trends you follow, the stories we post, the filters we use, let alone the endorphin rush we feel when we see those likes and those follows and those views flow in, it's addictive and it tells us that we are accepted, we are seen, our opinion or our picture or whatever we're saying online has been validated by others and we feel accepted. I mean, let's be honest. How would some of you react if, say, Travis Kelsey's latest girlfriend liked your next post? Or, or wait for it, commented on it or followed you? I mean, some of you just imagine that. I didn't even have to say her name, and you just about passed out. We long for acceptance. And ultimately, we long for something that no human on this earth can fulfill for us. Whether it's the demand for just application of our rights and being accepted by a powerful organization or government, or whether it's just wanting to be noticed by the popular kid, it all points to our longing to ultimately be accepted by the God of the universe. We long for access, we long for acceptance, and we absolutely long for absolution. How do I know that humanity longs for absolution, for the removal or forgiveness of guilt of sin? I can say that pretty confidently because every culture's and nation's legal code going all the way back to Hammurabi and the earliest biblical texts, every legal code has included laws defining guilt for wrongdoing and punishments or payments to make those wrongs right. I can say this with confidence because every human religion since the beginning of recorded history has included rituals and sacrifices and pilgrimages and good works and all kinds of things to erase transgression to appease the deity offended by our actions. We've already talked about the sacrificial system of priests and sacrifices for absolution in the Old Testament. Fast forward to the last thousand years, and millions and millions of people around the globe on a weekly basis go into a confessional booth at their church, and they confess their sins to a priest, and they are told that they have absolution. They are absolved. They are forgiven. And this is of life-giving importance to them. Absolution is important to us. And even for the non-religious in society, people who might be revulsed by the concept of ancient blood sacrifices on a Jewish altar, people who might scoff at the idea of going and telling your most private sins to a priest in a little dark booth, those same people might be the guy who's buying flowers at Safeway to make things right with his girlfriend who he just had a fight with. That same person who would mock those other ideas might be the person who's finally taking time to get into therapy 
to seek to identify and heal from shame and guilt from their past because guilt is crippling. We want absolution. We long for forgiveness. We long for healing from shame. We long for one who can give us access to God, one who can offer his full acceptance of who we are, one who can grant us complete absolution from the guilt that stains our consciences and ruptures our relationships with God and with others. We long for a better priest. We always have, and we still do today. And so I'd like to end this morning by claiming something that I have great confidence in, and that is that Jesus is the perfect priest who can satisfy that longing. The letter to the Hebrews that you find in the New Testament, more than any other book in the Bible, richly describes how Jesus is the great high priest. A better priest, a better mediator than any of those described in all of the Old Testament. In the passage that was read before the message, Hebrews chapter 2, specifically in verse 17, and Asher, here's where this starts. Asher's going to have a whole lot of verses to put up on screen, so fair warning, give him some grace. But in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, the author of Hebrews writes that in order to save humans, he, that is Jesus, had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. In other words, the advent, the coming of Jesus, specifically as a human being, someone like us, was essential for him being able to represent us before God as our high priest. And I'm here to tell you today that he is able to meet every need that we have for a priest. You ready for those three things that start with the letter A again? Jesus fulfills all of them. Jesus gives us the access and the acceptance that we long for. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 through 16, we read, We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus perfectly ushers us into the presence of God, giving us the access we want. And he ensures not only do we get access to the throne room of God, we are actually accepted by God, not because we deserve it, but because he himself is sinless. Even though he experienced every kind of temptation we do, he experienced all that temptation, he never sinned, and therefore he can represent us and bring us into God's presence where we are accepted by our Father. And it says here that he can empathize with us. He gets us. No matter what human rejection you've experienced, no matter what injustices you have either suffered or committed, no matter how powerless you feel, no matter how unworthy or unclean or shame-filled you feel yourself to be, Jesus, your great high priest, gives you all the access and acceptance you could ever hope for from God because he is your great high priest. He does this on the basis of his own sinless perfection, 
something that no other priest could ever offer to the people of God going to the tabernacle or the temple. Jesus gives us this access and this acceptance. This is precisely why when we pray, we pray in Jesus' name. Why do we bring the name of Jesus into it? It's because he's our priest. It's because his name represents all of his perfection that earns for us the access and acceptance for God before his throne of grace. We pray and we come to God confidently because of our great high priest. We have all the access and acceptance that we have ever longed for in him. And how is it that we are accepted? We are accepted because Jesus gives us the absolution that we long for. The sins that separate us from God have been once and for all atoned and forgiven by the perfect sacrifice made by the perfect priest. And spoiler alert, they are one and the same thing. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27, we read, Unlike the other high priests, he, that is Jesus, does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered himself. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Notice what these passages tell us. Unlike the Old Testament priests who had to repeatedly offer sacrifice of innocent animals for their own sins and for the sins of the people, and they did this day after day and year after year and century after century, Jesus, our sinless high priest, offered himself as a perfect sacrifice for sin that makes us holy before God. Jesus himself, as John the Baptist proclaimed when he saw Jesus, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When Jesus hung on the cross and he cried, it is finished, and he died, the just anger of God against all of our sin was forever removed. And when Jesus ascended into heaven, Hebrews describes our great high priest sitting down at the right hand of God. Because unlike any other priest who was never able to sit in the temple, do you know the temple didn't even have chairs? Because the point was the priest's job was never done. They could never rest. Jesus sits down at the right hand of God and he rests from his sacrificial work because his once and for all sacrifice was enough. It was everything we need to take away all of the guilt of our sin for all of time. We never have to answer for it again. There is never another lamb or goat who has to be sacrificed. The sacrifice was complete and Jesus' work was finished with sacrificing. And so now what does he do sitting at this right hand of God on a throne? In Hebrews chapter 7, verses 24 through 25, the author writes, because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. That is what Jesus is doing today, right this moment, as our great high priest. He is sitting next to God his perfect sacrifice fully accepted by God. 
and he is successfully pleading the merits of his own perfect sacrifice every time we fail, every time we sin, every time we do something that violates the perfect standard of God's holiness, Jesus is there saying, Father, my blood atoned for that sin. Accept my child for my sake. That is what our priest does. He still mediates between us and God, but there's no more sacrifice that's needed. He's doing the work every day, every minute of interceding for us, and he always will. There will never come a time when God our Father stops accepting us, says, no, you cannot have access into my presence. No, your sins are not absolved because Jesus' work is complete and Jesus' work is enough. We don't need any other mediator between us and God. Paul wrote in his letter to Timothy, and I forgot to get this scripture up on screen, but he wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. There is only one mediator we need. That means we don't need any other mediators. We don't need any priests. We don't need any saints. We don't need anybody else to confess our sins to because we have Jesus and he is enough. And in fact, not only is Jesus our great high priest mediating for us, he has actually made us priests under him with direct access to him. Peter tells us this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Talking to believers, he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people called for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We call this the personal priesthood of the believer. The reality that united to Christ, our great high priest, each one of us can go directly to God through his son. So this Advent season, as you find yourself longing for acceptance, longing for healing from shame and guilt and brokenness, I invite you to find comfort and joy in the amazing reality that there was a baby born in a stable 2,000 years ago who came to be your perfect priest and sacrifice. And let that longing drive you closer to him and closer to his redeemed people. Let's pray. Our holy and gracious God, we thank you that we can come into your presence right now in the name of Jesus Christ, our great high priest. We thank you that in him we have all the access to you, all the acceptance by you, all the absolution and removal of guilt that we could ever long for. We ask that you would make that a reality in each of our hearts this morning, that we would take hold of those truths by faith and be transformed to be more like Jesus Christ, our great high priest. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.